0: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk to Dr. Philip Gooding. Uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center at Miguel University, Montreal, Canada. We will be talking about his edited volume, Droughts, Floods, and Global Climatic Anomalies in the Indian Ocean World, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022, within a series uh, in the Indian Ocean World Studies. The book Droughts, Floods, and Global and global Climatic Anomalies explores histories of droughts and floods in the Indian Ocean world and their connections to broader global climatic anomalies. It deploys an interdisciplinary approach rooted in the emerging field of climate history to investigate the multifaceted effects of global climatic anomalies on regions affected by the Indian Ocean monsoon system, which is regularly conceived Uh, of as uh, the macro regions of deep structure, which we will be talking about later today. Case studies explore how droughts and floods related to uh, anomalous climatic conditions have historically affected states, societies, and ecologies across the Indian Ocean world, including in relation to food security, epidemic diseases, political stability and instability, economic change, infrastructural development, colonialism, capitalism, and scientific knowledge. Tracing long durée patterns from the 12th to the early 20th centuries, this book makes a significant contribution to our understanding of global climatic events and their effects on the Indian Ocean world. It highlights essential historical cases Uh, and studies for contextualizing the potential effects of global warming on the macro region in the present and future. Welcome, Philip, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the edited volume.
1: Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here again.
0: The pleasure is all mine. We would like first to learn about you. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested? And in the Indian Ocean world and any influential mentors that you had along the way?
1: Sure, yeah, so I am originally British uh, and I did all my schooling uh, in the UK. I studied um, put mostly uh, African history uh, at um, the School of OEMs and African Studies, SOAS, uh, at the University of London. Um, and I did that in my BA, uh, MA, uh, and PhD. Uh, and very much so throughout my early schooling, Oh, so PhD isn't really early schooling anymore, but throughout that process, I was focusing mostly just on Africa. Uh, my PhD thesis, which has now turned into a book, which I've also uh, had an interview about uh, for the New Books Network, that's uh, on the frontiers of the Indian Ocean world: in the history of late Tanganyika. Um, that uh, so originally all was kind of focused within and from an Africanist, state, an Africanist. Um, point of view um and that was born out just out of a broad interest uh in the region um that i kind of continued throughout my studies um but my kind of interest, my kind of broadening of my horizons out of kind of this um, lake region or the great lakes region of africa which is quite a long way from the indian ocean um in terms of distance um really came about through migrating to montreal and Um, embedding myself and eventually having a postdoctoral fellowship at the Indian Ocean World Centre, which is headed by uh, Professor Gwyn Campbell. Um, And this kind of process of coming um, to the Indian Ocean World Centre, engaging with scholars focusing on um, Madagascar, on... uh, Firstly, Madagascar and the Mascarene Islands, but then also thinking even further afield, the um, Arabian Peninsula uh, into South Asia, as what especially maybe think about not just thinking about my case study uh, focusing on Lake Tanganyika as part of um, from an Africanist perspective, but also thinking on a much wider macro, much wider um, spatial scale. Um, The kind of the kind of underpinning philosophy behind all this is that what I've always been trying to do with my historical research is answer the question, well, so what? And by what I mean by that is not just give kind of a really detailed history of my region and time period that I'm a specialist in, but also trying to understand how that influences and sits in with wider narratives that operate at a world scale. Um, and originally, when I was thinking about Lake Tanganyika, I was thinking mostly just around how does understanding this this kind of um, narrow, very large lake but um, narrow um, kind of area study how does that help us hand, understand the wider region of East Africa in the nineteenth century? What I actually came to um, came to realize, however, is that I could actually have a much wider temporal scale by engaging with the Indian Ocean world. Uh, sorry, a wider spatial scale by engaging with the Indian Ocean world. Um, and thinking about the kind of the the wider influences, um, both on Lake Tanganyika in terms of an international world history, but also Lake Tanganyika's influence in terms of how we understand the wider international world as well. So Hansard got that kind of interest and kind of thought about that wider spatial scale. Um, I tried to kind of understand more and more About what it is, what comprises the Indian Ocean world, what is it that makes it a distinct world? Um, And as all listeners to this podcast will know, some of the foundational works on this um, from a historical perspective, thinking of course, works by um, Chowdhury, uh, by Macpherson, by Pearson. All these works all really refer to the Indian Ocean monsoon system or the Asian monsoon system as kind of the key um, unifier. Although, so suppose unity is something that is sometimes queried. Um, the, the key structure, the deep structure, for using Pearson's terms, that binds the Indian Ocean um, together and links it all together in terms of um, in terms of its connections. Um, and kind of this book, this edited volume, Droughts, Floods and Global Climatic Anomalies in the Indian Ocean World, was trying to, came about partly to, firstly, to understand what is it that makes um, the regions around the Indian Ocean a distinct world. So engaging this kind of, um, fo- engaging with these foundational works. But then moving beyond that and actually trying to um, really assess what are the characteristics of the Asian monsoon system and how has it affected um, the Indian? Uh, how has it affected the wider Indian Ocean? One of the things that I think um, a lot of the foundational works is that they take um, the Indian Ocean monsoon system as kind of as a given as an annual back and forth, and this kind of builds on some of Fernand Bordel's core ideas about kind of an unchanging environmental context that binds the Indian Ocean world uh in changing um an an unchanging environmental context that binds world histories now what i wanted to really interrogate here is actually suggest and i think i think the um the introduction and the chapters when you consider them together consider them collectively um really achieve this is that actually you know the, the this underpinning environmental context is subject to a lot of variability yes the winds may change direction um annually or every six months enabling um, commercial and cultural connections around the international world but if we think about it in terms of rainfall instead rainfall is subject to a lot of variability um so that's kind of where, how I got interested in the topic um and yeah, and that's where the inspiration behind um, this book came from—is really trying to understand what makes the regions around the international world comprise a distinct world, and what are the characteristics of the structure of the deep structure that makes those connections. And it was to kind of really suggest ways in which that it's a highly variable phenomenon.
0: Thank you for sharing this very informative uh, overview uh, of the Indian Ocean field and your connection to it. Um, can you say a few words about your own mentors uh, who shaped your thinking on the field?
1: So in relation to that, yeah, um, Professor Gwyn Campbell's um, work has been pretty influential. Um, you, the, this um, book itself came about through, um, the, it was originally supposed to be a conference, which was scheduled for May 2020 um which was of course cancelled because of the outbreak of, break of covid and that conference was um meant to be an output for the Indian Ocean World Center's appraising risk past and present um partnership project which is fund- funded by the social sciences and humanities research council of canada and despite not having a a uh, um conference we still pushed through towards publication with combining um some of the people who are some of the scholars who are due to present at the conference and then adding um then basically approaching um some people who are engaged with the partnership um with, with the with the international world centers partnership project um that partnership project so this um obviously has a lot of mentors in it um, and this kind of comes through in the um in the uh contents page for example angela schottenhammer um and um James Francis Warren, um, are heavily heavily involved with the um, partnership project, as well as Professor Gwyn Campbell. Um, And this project is um, designed or intended to assess um, six periods of environmental stress in the past of the Indian Ocean world, um, where where for periods of between 20 um, and 40 years, the Indian Ocean monsoon system appears to have created um, particularly adverse climates for people across the Indian Ocean world. Um, the earliest one being in the sixth century um CE, and the most recent one being the one that we're currently experiencing. So, in terms of the mentors that have really influenced that, is really the 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 major contributors to this partnership project. So that's Professor Gwyn Campbell, who's the PI, and then, then Angler Schottenhammer, um, Jim Warren, um who uh, also, um, member who also wrote papers uh, or chapters for this edited volume.
0: Uh, thank you. Um, I would like to ask you about uh, this paradox between historians acknowledging the centrality of the monsoon system and in the Indian Ocean, but at the same time we find that climate history comes quite late to the historiography. How do you explain that?
1: It's such a very interesting question, and this is going and anything I'm going to answer to that is quite um speculative um i think um there has been a reluctance particularly in the 20th particularly in the late 20th century to engage with the variability of the monsoon system because of a fear of climate determinism um and i can refer to this especially in terms of africanist history there was a period uh in the kind of the particularly following um, the independence movements uh, and the origins of African history, there was, and I'm referring to some foundational journal articles by um, William Beinart and and um, James McCann, which were published around 2000-2001 here, um, where they kind of acknowledge that there's a re- reluctance among many historians um, of Africa, and I assume this applies to the wider international world to some degree as well, to engage with climate uh, as a driving factor behind history, behind historical processes. Um, Because this was, because during the colonial period and early European contacts with Africa, there was um, a lot of climatic determinism in imperial thinking. Um, And there's, and these, and kind of, there's these racial tropes about, uh, among imperialist thinking, which kind of saw the, which equated um, harsh environments to environments that um, Europeans struggled to survive in because of lack of immunity to tropical diseases, and what they saw as factors that contributed to them being more um, civilized than um, people uh, and societies of color. Um, so I think there was kind of, there, particularly in the 20th century there, because of this kind of long-term colonial legacy, I see a, an uneasiness in the historiography, particularly of um, Africa, to engage with climate um, as an important factor in, in the continent's history, um, simply because it was difficult to disentangle a climate-focused history from the narratives of colonialism. Now, I think that paradigm uh, is in the process of shifting, um, and they're find- they finding new ways to engage in climate, and this is definitely a response to the current challenges of global warming, where I think it's seen as increasingly integral and increasingly important to think about climate as its effects on history, but also at the same time to acknowledge its colonial past and to do it in ways that are different. Um, to the ways that um Europeans did in the late 19th and early 20th century. So that'd be kind of my speculation. I'd wonder I, I do wonder um about the wide Indian Ocean, the why it might might not have um impacted so much. Of course, some regions have like a longer tradition of climate history, China being the most obvious one where there's been a lot of documentary research um since the 1970s, at least. Um, and probably before um, where climate has been where kind of climatic variations have been kind of charted and looked at in official gazetteers and have been analyzed as a result. Um, but also one of the other factors that probably has limited it for the for limited kind of focusing on the variability in the foundational studies might be because of lack of data and the difficulty of accessing data that can kind of suggest um, wide climatic variabilities on a on a big scale uh, across the Indian Ocean. Um, I think historians um, would naturally want to look for this kind of data in uh, or would previously have wanted to look for this kind of data in um, archives. This is where we this is the kind of material that we're most familiar with which means if you're going to look for a kind of large broad scale climatic variations that means you've got to look at a lot of archives and that requires a, a lot of work whereas now with things like the global historical climate um, network which has compiled all the um, known um, rain gauge data which goes back to the um, for some regions, goes back to the early 19th century that's all freely available online now Um, we have um, then we also have things like global climatic models um, which help us to kind of project what might have been the effects of certain um, like El Nino events and this wasn't available to scholars writing in the 1980s but it is now so a combination of trying to so so to answer your kind of a question in a very simple in, in kind of three broad points I think uh, a willingness to engage in climate as a factor now that we're trying to move beyond um, colonialist paradigms about the role of climate in history is one factor that is kind of contributing now to the kind of a growth in this history Two, um, the influence of um, global warming and that this is seen as an increasingly important thing to do for historical methodologies. And three, the availability of data makes it increasingly possible that you can do it now in a way that it probably wasn't in the 1980s and 1990s. That would be my suggestion, but I'd be open to um, to some more suggestions uh, in that regard.
0: Yes, this, this makes absolute perfect sense. And uh, thank you for bringing all these trends of Um, Thinking together uh, and explaining uh, the integration of climate history into the Indian Ocean world history. Um, We can now turn to the book and it's 11 chapters. Uh, The book, uh, the edited volume, moved geographically from China to Africa and in periodization also from the 12th century to the 21st century. Um, And in your introduction, you sketch this vast geography and periodization and introducing the subsequent volumes. Um, would you like to talk about um the running themes uh, across these chapters uh, as you've uh, as you've edited the volume?
1: Sure, yeah. so the, I can talk probably the easiest, easiest way to do that is to kind of discuss what I put in the the call for chapters, actually. Um basically, what I wanted to do is engage environmental historians broadly conceived who have analysed um, droughts, floods, as singular events, or as in a period of period of events over lo- over the long term, want to get engage them. And most I think, and there are exceptions here, and that's yeah, definitely reflected in, in the author list. But most of them may have been familiar with a drought event in their particular region of study, which might be confined to, for example, China, might be confined to the Philippines, might be confined to East Africa. And what I wanted to do with them, and this is what I saw as my edited role, was to, to ask them um, to do that normal case study, inviting case studies. So what do you want to do? Do you want to study the drought? If you've got you've studied a drought event, you see this having a massive effect on political stability, which would be the case for Gwyn Campbell's chapter on early 19th century Madagascar, or on food security, which would be the case for, um, for Teresa Ventura's chapter on um the drought in the philippines in 1911 or on for example on epidemics um which comes through in my own chapter uh and very much and it comes through on in jim warren's chapter as well and then also on things like colonial science which is it comes through in a fascinating chapter by fiona williamson uh on um colonial singapore between 1877 and 1911. So I wanted to kind of in, invite scholars to, yes, identify their drought or uh, dra- enjoy their flood, um, and then to kind of use what they know of that drought or flood to kind of think about what, how it impacted, how it or how it impacted um, other themes in in their region's history. But then, kind of what I saw my role as the ed- as the editor um, was to do two kind of things with that: is if there is a significant drought or flood in their region of study. My, there's a logic behind thinking of the Indian Ocean world as a connected space and connected by the Indian Ocean monsoon system. Thing, thinking was that if there's a massive drought in the Philippines triggered by a massive drought of the a, a massive drought in the Philippines, for example, to take um, Theresa Ventura's chapter, um, chapter eleven, as I think about, um, well, what underpinned that? Um, and it looks like this is a is triggered by El Nino. Um, and then, if it's triggered by El Nino, so where else may have been affected by it? If, the, if this suggests if there's a drought um, in uh, if there's an El Nino triggered drought somewhere in the Indian Ocean world, it suggests that Indian Ocean was Indian Ocean monsoon system was also triggered, uh, was also kind of made um, unstable by this broader global climatic event. Uh, and then, so can we see where else may have been affected by this um, by this uh, by this event as well? So that's kind of what I was asking my asking the what the cool papers was was to yeah really get to grips with your case study and then we can work together um to think about what the global climatic factors triggered that triggered that where there's El Nino where there's volcanic eruptions where there's a series of El Nino events where there's Indian Ocean dipole where there's all these things linked together in certain ways um and then more beyond that if, if we can identify that El, if we can identify that uh Potentially, or suggest that um that uh, trigger from a global climatic standpoint can we kind of test that by looking um by testing by looking at the expertise um, of uh, other people involved in the project uh, and knowing their kind of regional specializations for example, Teresa Ventura's chapter we're able to suggest that this El Nino event which she focused on for the Philippines also has a wider Kind of context whereby drought also occurred in parts of the Indian subcontinent. There's above average rainfall in East Africa as well, just looking at the colonial st- looking at the kind of rain gauge statistics. Um, so that's kind of what the idea was that links them all together. Yes, so it's very much kind of started off with a case study that all of the authors would have been experts in already simply because of their regions and time periods of specia- specialism. Then the kind of the Next step with all of those was to situate them in a wider global climatic context. I mean, what triggers these case studies from a climatic standpoint? Then also, if we can identify that or suggest an identification for that, can we then link it to abnormal climatic conditions elsewhere in the macro region as well, therefore, thereby giving a wider environmental and a wider spatial context for all the case studies that we analyzed? And the answer to that, I think I think we did that fairly successfully um, with all the chapters. A couple of them that really do stand out, however, I just want to draw your attention, are really um, Archisman Chowdhury's um, chapter, which focuses on the El Nino 1685 to 87. Now, he focuses on um, Golconda and the northern Coromandel coast in South Asia, and he links this El Nino event to famine, uh, to drought, um, and then followed by that, followed by floods, Uh, And he links it also to famine and to the spread, particularly of smallpox. Now, not only did he think, did he suggest ways in which there are other regions, particularly Southeast Asia, which experienced um, similar levels of drought as in the Coromandel Coast, but he also therefore also suggested that the outbreak of smallpox on the Coromandel Coast, also that travelled to the Southeast Asia as well, um, via the transport of enslaved people by the Dutch VOC. So not just by thinking about so, firstly by thinking about the wider climatic context and the wider kind of spatial context in the ocean world, we also have some of the kind of the effects within these local case studies being spread over wider areas as well. Um, yeah, and I think I'll, I'll leave it at that. I could list list you some more, but I don't want to belabor the point.
0: Great, thank you for this. Um, I'm curious about the nature of sources by looking at uh, or thinking about climate change and climate history um some of the sources would be let's say more straightforward of you know documenting rainfall and weather patterns and others wouldn't be straightforward such as literary texts or inscriptions uh, and so on um, so how do you observe the let's say the differences and and the nature of sources that these chapters are drawing on?
1: That's a very interesting question. And it's and one of the things that I really like about climate history is I've got further and further into it, is that is it is incredibly interdisciplinary. Um and is increasingly so. Um I don't I think the, the individual authors could probably talk to their sources. A lot better the than I can for my chapter myself, I relied on missionary sources for the most part um but one of the, but the sources that really pervade a lot of the book I wouldn't say the whole book but a lot of it are things like global climatic models um and um global climatic reconstructions um and things like drought atlases um Fiona Williamson's chapter draws on the monsoon Asia drought atlas, for example um and these are natural these so as I'm sure a lot of um listeners are aware of like a lot of um climate reconstructions use, for example, tree rings, ice cores, lake sediments uh uh coals um to reconstruct and past climates they've also been to suggest levels of rainfall at different times so this kind of looking at the natural world as a source or analysis of natural phenomena as natural flora natural um, flora um, as a uh, as, as a source now these um now, what happens if you put all this data together um, next to each other? You can kind of also reconstruct past and um, climatic conditions in kind of a, a, in their lo, kind of in a certain locale. But if there's a one, if there's a series of tree rings in a certain locale, then you can kind of maybe reconstruct past climatic conditions. But then you can also feed these into global climatic models. So even where there are um, maybe no natural proxy data or very limited amounts of pro- natural proxy data, you might be able to suggest. Um, or you can suggest, I should say, um, levels of rainfall and broader climatic conditions in those regions as well by putting the kind of integrating them into wider drought atlases um, or um, climate reconstructions. Um, so these are the kind of sources which I think are almost like the next stage in climate climate historical research that, I, that we started to engage with in this um entered volume, and I think we're going to engage with more. In fact, I'm trying to do so right now. Um, where the use of natural proxies has been where the use of um global um climate simulations um and reconstructions of the past um kind of can suggest um rainfall variability on fairly narrow scales. Um, one such project, um the 20th century reanalysis um. So reanalysis is the process. So this is this is a basically a product um, which suggests um, daily, in fact, but monthly is probably. So you can do it. You can do it daily, but you can do it on monthly as well. Um, climatic conditions over the entire world, um, which is just a degree of temporal resolution, which is just well, just incredible, um, and it does that all the way back to 1836. Now, to the degree to which that is um, usable, um, those figures that they suggest are usable, particularly if they're not citing um, any kind of proxy material in the regions that you're studying, is there's probably a debate, a very large debate that still needs to be had about those uses and about their usability. Um, But that's kind of... To answer your question, to answer kind of your question, yeah, it's the interdisciplinary nature of climate history that I think this book reflects. Um, and I think there are still more steps to go in that direction as well, um, which kind of incorporates these interrogates, incorporates, uh, and suggests ways of using um, these kind of global climatic models as a way of doing um, climate history.
0: Yes, that would be amazing if somebody would uh, listen to us and take on this call to write as something reflecting on the nature of sources when it comes to reconstructing climate uh, climate history. Um, uh, let's now move to your chapter uh, uh, NSO, uh, IOD, drought and floods in equatorial eastern Africa between 1876 to 78. Um, first, what is uh, ENSO and IOD for our listeners, if you can briefly uh, uh, introduce them uh, to these uh, climatic phenomena. And uh, What do you observe during the late 19th century uh, equatorial eastern Africa that we should pay attention to and trying to understand the history of the region?
1: Sure, yeah. So ENSO, that's El Nino Southern Oscillation. So that's an anomaly of sea surface temperatures in the uh, eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean, uh, which was, I suppose, first discovered, I think, in the late 19th century um, as kind of a phenomenon, but as a phenomenon governing... Um, significant climatic variation. was really, ento science really began from around the 1960s. Uh, And El Niño Southern Oscillation, so this is when sea surface temperatures are significantly above normal, is an El Niño year, Uh, and when they're below normal is a La Niña year. We're talking about a positive, uh, so a positive anomaly, so when they're above normal for this case study that I'm doing here. Uh, And El Niño so, anomalies in the El Nino Southern Oscillation are the largest driver of interannual um, climate variability on a global scale. Um, that's true in the past and it's true now. Uh, IOD uh, is sometimes referred to as the Indian Nino, Nino sometimes because it's, it's seen as some, occasionally it's seen as uh, linked or triggered by El Nino, although that's still being interrogated. But the Indian Ocean Dipole is an anomaly of sea surface temperatures in the Indian Ocean. Um, and a positive Indian Ocean dipole is when the western half of the Indian Ocean is significantly warmer than the eastern half, uh, and a negative anomaly is the opposite way around, when the eastern half is warmer than the western half. because of fact because of um the process of convection, if there is an anomaly of Indian Ocean dipole, the eastern the, sorry the, when there is an anomaly of Indian Ocean dipole, the warm the areas around the warmer half of the Indian Ocean. Will receive significantly above average rainfall, and the areas on the colder half of the around the colder half of the Indian Ocean will receive below average rainfall. The most recent significant, the most recent, really significant example of this occurred in 2019. Um, and people and and keen listeners will probably remember um, some of the conditions in 2019. You'll probably be familiar with um, the serious bushfires uh, in um, Australia um this is sorry in 2019 so it's a positive Indian ocean dipole so there's a so there's lots of drought around the eastern half and a lot of above average rainfall in the western half so there's serious bushfires in the um in the in, in, in australia hit global headlines uh, and in the west um, around, particularly uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, the the Horn of Africa, and parts of Eastern Africa, there are significant flooding events followed by massive locust infestations, which themselves were triggered by the flooding events. Um, so that's what El Niño and East Ocean Dipole are. Now, um, in 1876 to 78, we have one of the largest um, El Niño dip- El Niño um, events positive El Nino events occurred with one of the largest Indian Ocean positive Indian Ocean dipole events. They occurred simultaneously um, and they are some of the largest ever recorded. Um, People, uh, people interest, scholars interested in this kind of temporality, the 1876 to 1878, may be familiar with um, this um, year, these years as being a year of Severe climatic stress in several parts of the Indian Ocean world, notably through the work um, of Mike Davis, um, his 2000 or 2001 um, celebrated book, um, "Late Victorian Holocausts," um, which kind of tracked, which identified and he identified it just as El Nino. He wrote just at a time when Indian Ocean Dipole was only really being being recognised by the scientific community as a driver of climate variability. Um, so he only attributed to El Nino. It looks like there is significant um, Indian Ocean Dipole anomalies as well. And there's also anomalies in the Atlantic as well, which I don't get into in this chapter, um, but which has been verified by climatologists since. Um, and there have been scholars since um, uh, Davis uh, who have kind of identified abnormal um, climatic conditions across the Indian Ocean world. Um, for example, Fiona Williamson's work uh, on um, Singapore and the Malay Peninsula, um, and then there's some been work some work done, uh, but in for northeastern and southeastern Africa as well. My contribution here is kind of filling a gap. Um, Equatorial Eastern Africa is the region that I was originally trained in, and I'd consulted the archives with the view thinking, well, did East Africa experience um, these significant rainfall uh, events? did it have abnormal climatic conditions as well, simply because the rest of the international world, or large swathes of the international world, looks like there have been too. Uh, And the answer to that question was yes. Um, That There were significantly weird climatic phenomena going on, which were recorded in the missionary um, archives. Um, And it looks like from these missionary archives, the missionaries report on pretty severe drought in 1876, going into 1877, followed by um, severe flooding in certain regions in 1877-78. Um, this is, broadly speaking, in line with what we'd expect as well. Um, climatological research, notably by Sharon Nicholson, uh, she has investigated a lot about w- how, what the what the effects of El Niño and Indian Ocean Dipole are on East African climate. And yeah, broadly speaking, we'd expect there to be average rainfall in the year before, the onset of El Nino conditions and significantly above average rainfall in the year of. And this really comes through in the missionary sources. Now the missionaries themselves were only just entering the region at this time, so what they are commenting on, they didn't really understand. And a lot of what we kind of is only after. Sometimes to some, they they commented a lot on floods in 1877 to, to 78, which they really didn't expect. But it's also in years afterwards they commented on their they kind of reflected on kind of experiences of this year, and was like, yeah, that was really weird. We've never experienced that. We've not experienced that again. Like 1877 to 78 was a massively above average rainfall or a lot more than we'd normally expect. So in kind of identifying looking so kind of with this uh, chapter, I went through the missionary archives, um, a mixture of the Church Missionary Society um, archives, the London Missionary Society archives, the um, White Fathers archives and kind of identified their reports of um, below average rainfall and above average rainfall. I also put that into conversation with some monthly uh, rain gauge data, which has being collected at the coast uh, at Mombasa uh, and in Zanzibar to just kind of, kind of at some broader regional variations to see how well they're supported. Um, and uh, yeah, by kind of reconstructing where the most severe droughts or the most abundant flood or the largest inundations occurred, I kind of linked what these effects might have been on society. I kind of linked it to kind of three broad thematic phenomena. Um, there looks like there's been some food shortages in the year of drought, particularly um, uh, around Mpua uh which is uh, just beyond the coastal hinterland. Um, and there appears to have been um, late planting throughout the region um, because the rains arrived significantly late in 1876 too. Um, then after that, there appears to have been replanting in the year of floods because maybe the first, um, maybe the first um, planting were inundated and basically suffocated underwater. Then I also linked it to to, to disease, um, thinking particularly to um, animal diseases, particularly bovine trypanos, trypanum, uh, trypanosomiasis, otherwise known as sleeping sickness, which appears to have been epidemic during the year of floods. Uh, in the coastal hinterland, uh, and to possibly in uh, uh, higher severity of smallpox uh, during the um, year of drought, uh, as I think there's a, there's a, a bit of evidence to suggest that um, the uh, that food shortages encourage people to travel in search of food and wages, and this may have pushed. Um, or pushed infected people to travel further, therefore making the epidemic spread further as well. And there seems to be correlation throughout the 1870s and 1880s that in the years of heightened drought uh, or years when there's lesser rainfall that smallpox does get reported on in the archive an awful lot more. Um, And then the other one, which is a bit more speculative, I think is I kind of suggested that the drought year also contributed to heightened levels of political instability. Particularly um, on the fringes of some of the largest states, uh, who, because of potentially low harvests, um, may have been in search of, um, may may have gone in search of resources of, kind of neighbouring regions uh, in order to feed their political centres. Um, so that's kind of it's kind of very exploratory in some ways. Thinking about some of the broad themes of what we think climatic variability can be effect- can be linked to, which kind of pervade the whole book as well, uh, and kind of tracing their tracing them uh, in 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 the missionary archive to see uh, the extent to which they they occurred. Yeah, so yeah, I firstly identified the identified the climatic conditions, then kind of explored the ways in which that they might have affected um, states and societies in the region, particularly focusing on food security, disease and political instability.
0: Mm -hmm. I would like to connect this chapter to your recently published uh, monograph uh, on the frontiers of the Indian Ocean world, a history of Lake Tanganyika, published by Cambridge University Press last year. And I would like to ask you this uh, provocate, let's say a provocation, uh, which is if we would take climate history and environmental history out of your uh, historical analysis, of of the lake uh what would we miss uh in in our historical understanding or let's say what what would it add to our understanding if we were to include climate history in our historical analysis uh of the region i think Um, it just gives (laughs) us
1: yeah it it does so so uh, as you're aware so chapter two of my um book on the frontiers of the ocean world does engage with climate history um, kind of and it and it does mention this 1876-78 um, event though in nowhere near as in depth and focusing only pretty much uh, on Ujiji uh, and the wider region around Lake Tanganyika um, whereas this has a much wider um, geographical scope incorporating the coastal hinterland Buganda um, present day in central Tanzania as well um, and what it kind of does I think it just gives a deeper context to kind of the Broader themes that are known from East African history. So, from this, so it is well known even from the works published in 1960s and 1970s, when African history is really starting to become a respected and established a field within global university institutions. Um, that the 19th century was a period of massive political um, and uh, economic change, principally um through growing strategies of state building, um, and through the connections between inland East Africa with um the wider global economy, principally through the global expansion of the global ivory trade, where East Africa the tusks of East African elephant- elephants were particularly demanded in the industrializing um North America and industrializing Europe. Um But one of the things that I think is kind of missed from a focus on just on state building and on this kind of global economic um, change um, is the fact that most people in East Africa remained as um, farmers. Now, this does not mean that they that, that but but on top of that, though, but farming didn't stay constant throughout this period, the new crops were added maize. Um, rice cassava um, entered inland regions in significant quantities for the first time during this period and these are um, potentially high yield crops Um, but but maize and rice in particular which are possible staples um, have less um, resistance to water stress um, which means can potentially increase drought vulnerability of of societies so what you what i think you get from adding kind of climate perspective is actually you get um, a sense of the context that affects most of the people in the region, and the, a sense of the factors that actually underpin the region's economies. Um, agriculture, and in some re- more the arid, some of the arid regions, pastoralism, is still remains the backbone of the economy. So, if you really want to understand that, I think you really do need to understand the climatic context, uh, and I think you need to particularly do so as the, further and further on in the nineteenth century, um, when states get larger. When settlements get larger, so they're relying on a larger supply of food around um food from kind of around these uh, political centers and urban commercial centers as well. You also and also in the context of the fact that a lot of farmers are growing crops which are potentially higher yield, but also have less resistance to water stress. So that's what you I think you get a lot. Yes, you get a lot from climate history in terms of understanding the functioning um, of. The kind of the backbone of the the states and the things that keep them going on a day-to-day basis outside of kind of the kind of the global economic factors such as the connections to the world economy the other thing which I think is important to note here that I think still needs some more research and particularly nuanced research is actually required and it's something that I'm wrestling with um, is that some of these some of these things that we associate with, um the spread of global capitalism is kind of the degeneration of um, environments, particularly, including in the Indian Ocean world. Um, and you kind of see kind of as a result of the need to produce kind of cash crops quickly, um, uh, crops for sales and not so not so increasingly commercialized agriculture as opposed to um, and agriculture that priority prioritizes profit over survival. And this is kind of a feature of the spread of capitalism in the Indian Ocean world, and I think I think India is probably the 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 case studies that really um, come through to that. And I kind of refer you to kind of the work of um, Nita Damodaran on on that front. Um, But I one of the things that I really and that's very much associated with also the spread of colonialism at the same time. what I'm kind of observing here is actually there's actually quite similar patterns occurring in East Africa during the nineteenth century and um, through the spread of the the result the the need the the integration of the region with um the global climate with sorry integration of the region with the growing capitalist economy at this time provokes certain changes in the agricultural regimes that um basically service capitalism in the way that they feed caravans they feed commercial centers they feed states which exploit the global ivory trade Um, and this comes to the detriment of food security for large swathes of the population in periods of climatic stress Um, now this kind of gives kind of an agentive this kind of in some ways gives agency to a lot of agency for structures emanating from the global north uh, from, from the, the metropoles where capitalism is being spread from, so from the UK, from the United States. Um, and this kind of goes contrary to a lot of what Africanist historical research has been uh, since the 1960s, which is to basically understand African history in its own right um, to get out of Eurocentric paradigms where you've got to where you focus on local agency local local revolutions the local drivers of state building local drivers of economic change and how they responded in i suppose ways that are not cogent with um what capitalism would expect because these are distinctly local responses you don't want to smooth out these overall uh you don't want to smooth out vast differences um across um, between europe and africa and one of the things i'm really wrestling with here, um, which I think requires more research and I think comes from bringing the environment and the environmental context into it, is that we're kind of seeing, actually, you know, there is a significant kind of European or at least capitalistic influence on East Africa during the 19th century, um, which needs to be unpicked. One of the ways the way that I'm kind of framing this is how am I, how do you conceptualize African uh, agency or um african autonomy um within the context of growing european capitalist hegemony even if that doesn't seem to be direct on east africa at the same time in the 19th century what i'm exploring at the moment what you get from studying the environmental context is need to wrestle with that question more uh, and i think that's where something that i'm kind of wrestling with now and hope to continue to do so in the future
0: uh, thank you for that can you um Say something about um, who would you hope would read this book, and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Uh, yes. so I
1: think this book is mostly for um academics. I don't i'd I'd love to say that it it has a really wide readership for undergraduates. It probably doesn't except in a methods course um which would talk about climate history as a po- as as method and the ways you can incorporate diverse source types, for example, you alluded to a couple like uh, um, with uh, carvings and art history, um, but also the ones I mentioned too, like global climatic models and how you can integrate those as series. So, in an, maybe an environment, so an under so a methods course uh, in um, in um, in history would be uh, a way that it could be integrated into an undergraduate reading list. But other than that, I think it's mostly experts in climate history, and it is mostly interesting. And I think this gives. Kind of a, a nice overview of the possibilities um, for kind of specialists in East African history, late 19th century East African history would be interested to read my take on the late 1870s and Stephen Wockle's take on the 1880s um, and then specialists in China, in the history of China would want to read, I'd expect would be very interested in um, Sylvia uh, Ebner, Ebner von Eschenbach's chapter and Angleshottenhaus's chapter. So there's kind of I think most I think most um, readings of it will be on a chapter by chapter basis for people interested in particular um, regions within the Indian Ocean world. Um, but yeah, um, it's people who are for scholars mostly who are interested in climate history and the practice of climate history and how you can go about doing it. And also, the other group would be um, Indian Oceanist historians and how you understand the Indian Ocean uh, and Indian Ocean world as a connected space. I think, while a lot of the connections um, are kind of conceived in terms of cultural connections uh, and economic connections through physical lines of connection um, by oceanic trade and oceanic migrations, I think there's other connections to draw out here, particularly with the um, collective experiences uh, of the Indian Ocean monsoon system and anomalies and variations uh, therein. So yeah, I think it's mostly going to be experts, academics are so going to be engaged with the book as a whole, um, but then um, the introduction in terms of methods uh, and the introduction in terms of methods could be interesting to, um, uh, to undergraduate students a um, methods in a methods course. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then obviously from of a regional specialization. Um each chapter kind of contributes to its own regional historiography um, very well, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think it would really be useful for students, uh, especially because every chapter ends with uh, a bibliography of the archival sources and the published and published sources, uh, which, which are really useful, as well as maps and figures and charts and tables that uh, historians and other researchers can use as a source of, uh, of their data. Uh, Well, uh, Philip, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, so thank you so much for your uh, generous answers. Uh, You've mentioned a little bit about what you're wrestling with now. Is that what you're working on now? Uh, Would you like to say something about uh, your current or future projects?
1: Sure, thanks. Um, Yes, my current research is basically climate history um, of East Africa. Um, And I've kind of alluded to a lot of what I'm doing uh, or trying to do uh, now throughout in some of my answers, but my, my current project um, is uh, one that is uh, funded by again by SSHRC, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, um, investigating um, climate history and human environmental inter- human environment interaction in equatorial eastern Africa uh, circa 1750 to 1900, uh, and the idea here is kind of similar with this edited volume, um, is to kind of write a climate history of the region, um, firstly, by reconstructing past climates using a variety of sources, um, and then using that kind of new climate archive, is what I'm kind of, clawing. I'm trying to create basically an archive that uses climate models, documentary sources, um, climate reanalysis, um, global circulation models, um local proxy records in like lake sediments read um tree rings from just outside the region coral records from in the Indian Ocean itself to kind of make a reconstruct climate for the period 1750 to 1900 some of the early periods are kind of doing on a decadal scale some of the later periods will be doing on you can even do on on a monthly scale, we'll probably limited limit for the purposes purpose of analysis. Um, make meaningful analysis will be meaningful analysis will be basically on a um, on a on a seasonal scale. And basically, creating this kind of climate archive using all these diverse source types um, as a basis to reinterpret um, East African history focusing principally on the major state building zones in that region during the um, late 18th to 19th centuries, which is inland central Tanzania, around the Unyamwezi kingdoms, Um, and then also in um, Buganda, in present day Uganda, um, and kind of assess the ways, kind of assess the ways in which variable climatic conditions um, influence um, the growth of states, during this period in those two zones uh, over the 19th century, over the 18th and 19th centuries. um, I'm in the process of, I've done most of the research for that. I'm in the process of trying to write it up um, and hopefully there'll be a book proposal going out before the end of the year. And uh,
0: then we'll start possibly trying to, well, get it finished. I look forward to that and best of luck um, with drafting the book. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. And for sharing your insights and thoughts about climate history and in the Indian Ocean, and thank you for the listeners uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored droughts, floods, and global climatic anomalies in the Indian Ocean World published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. This is your host Ahmed El Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.